0: All Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So um, I think that today, a guest it's going to be quite exciting to hear. Uh, he's built a couple of companies already. I think that um, very talented, also foreigner. So he also experienced the culture shock of coming here to the U.S. and to see the vibrancy of, of innovation everywhere. But I guess uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome our, our guest today, Yuchun Lee. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So originally born in Taiwan. So how was life, uh, you know, being born and, and, and growing up there? Well, it was uh, uh, very crowded, very competitive. And
1: uh, I had to get out of there because if I don't, I would need to serve four years in the military as part of the mandatory requirement for, for, for young boys. So my parents got me out of there.
0: <laughs> wow. At what time, at what age is the military? Uh, so
1: you start at uh, around 17, 18, and it takes four years.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, I remember we had something similar like that in Spain, but they, I was very lucky that they you know, took that requirement out like two years before I was due for it. Right, right. So very nice. So then you came to the U.S. So what happened here? What, what triggered the move to the, to the U.S.? Well, mainly
1: because my father was an uh, oil tanker captain, and he was never home. So he got tired of always being away, and uh, he found an opportunity to open a company here. With uh, an investor, so we immigrated uh, over here, the whole family.
0: So then, was that the time where you started to to see what it looked like to uh, to be an entrepreneur?
1: Well, I've I've always been uh, fascinated about commerce, the the prospect of buying something and then selling something at a margin. So uh, I think it's in my DNA to to do that, and and uh, hence uh, you know I've I've always had an interest with startups.
0: And your first company in high school. So it took no time. So how did this happen?
1: Yeah. So uh, I was a nerd in high school. So I ended up spending a lot of time uh, playing with uh, computers. That's when uh, my high school first got some personal computer, Apple computers at the time. And, um, you know, we 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 uh, fool around with some friends, uh, got really proficient at it. And uh, in my uh, junior year, I started a company to help Uh, professionals to do their drafting professional professional drafting on an apple pc it was the first program in the market that that allowed a professional to do that
0: okay so what what were you what were you doing here with this company then
1: yeah so so yeah so after after two years i mean they made good money uh i had to go to college went went up to mit uh for my undergraduate and and graduate uh school at mit and and basically had to drop that business because of uh, the workload that's involved in, in, the, in the new school
0: got it so then let's talk about MIT so because I know that MIT is really unbelievable when it comes to um, engineering and you know and, and, and having a network to all these other engineers so what what opened your mind the uh, you know the the experience of uh, being in MIT what was that you know experience for you like
1: you know, if, it's, a, it's a great question. And I would say that most people I know that graduated from MIT always tell you that it was a very humbling uh, experience. There's a lot of people smarter than... You realize there's a lot of people smaller than you. And uh, uh, you find also other people that have similar interests, namely, you know, we're all pretty nerdy. And um, in fact, my my company today, Allego, is uh, uh, founded by... Uh, people that i met there and as well as friends i met along the way uh, fellow entrepreneurs so it's Very a cool. it's a it's a place to meet great people
0: and we'll talk about alego uh, in a little bit but let's continue here so so you did your undergrad and you also did your you also you know did your graduate degree from MIT and i understand that you also joined the MIT blackjack team so what was this
1: well it's a a pretty infamous group that's known in the casino industry as a team to have figured out a way to beat the casino. So we're, we're able to go to uh, Las Vegas and able to uh, beat the house at their own game uh, using just our brain, using a technique that uh, frankly is not too hard to, to, to train people. It takes about six months to, to train, to be good at it. Um, and it's completely uh, legal. Uh, so uh, the casinos are, are afraid of us. So they trying to, pick us out and try to kick us out of because, you know, so it's a little bit like, like a spy James Bond type of experience, if you will. It's, uh, it was a fun experience for me personally.
0: So what did you learn from the blackjack game?
1: Well, there's uh, a lot of camaraderie, okay, because you're walking around uh, trying to uh, beat this massive organization, a little bit of the David versus Goliath type of feel to the interaction. Uh, you have to learn how to act. That's actually the hardest part. Uh, The counting part becomes second nature after a while, but learning to act and not get caught is uh, pretty thrilling and also pretty nerve-wracking as well.
0: So what was the craziest thing that you saw?
1: Craziest thing? Uh, Well, I was betting on a table with Larry Flynn, uh, who's well-known as the founder of Hustler Magazine, and he was in Las Vegas, uh, Caesars Palace, sitting next to me and uh, was putting out a lot of money. And uh, I was putting out a lot of money. And two of us basically had about almost, a, almost 50, 80 people around us watching us betting. And uh, he lost a million dollars that weekend.
0: That was crazy. Wow. So what was the, the, the biggest hand that you ever won that you can <laughs> remember?
1: In the span of one round, uh, I, was, I think I won like 80000 in two minutes.
0: Wow. And I assume that you know also because entrepreneurship there's a lot of uncertainty uh involved, and I'm sure that in Blackjack when you're waiting to get the next hand, you know there's also a lot of uncertainty because that's going to determine you know the potential outcome you know every single hand you know that that you're given you know it's it's really determining the result so how how did you learn how to be with with uncertainty yeah that, this is you're asking the the, the, uh, the heart of the question
1: of. You know how to survive as an entrepreneur. I, I think there is inherently a lot of unknown, a lot of risk, and when good things or bad things happen uh, to an entrepreneur, you have to discern whether that's because you made a mistake or because you were unlucky, right? So uh, in blackjack, it's the same thing. I mean, you, you can count perfectly, but you can still lose money. So the idea here is is that you got to have enough emotional fortitude, have the stomach to whether the downturn, knowing that you are doing the right thing, and over the long haul, uh, statistics and law, law of large number will take over, and you end up winning. So it, it is a it is a hard skill to learn, and it's something that uh, I think uh, good entrepreneurs are able to stomach that downturn while uh, be resilient on the upturn, uh, so 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 that they can continue to to persevere through the difficulties.
0: And and my understanding as well is that. While at MIT, uh, when you were doing your, your graduate degree, uh, you also got the, um, the second company in motion. It was a hardware business. So tell us about this.
1: Yeah, so me and a friend of mine uh, saw the, the wave of uh, personal computing. Um, and IBM has put out a standard, basically, at the time, uh, around the 8088, 8086 80, chipsets. So we end up creating a bunch of uh, PC compatibles we import parts from Asia and assemble them in our dorms and sell them. At one point in time, we were uh, probably the lowest cost producer in the East Coast. Very cool. But as, 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 uh, as, as faith to have it, uh, we realized how fast the hardware was depreciating over time. And so we got out of business knowing that if we don't move the inventory fast enough, you could lose money and that's the same year that that Michael Dell figured out how to do that successfully and uh he obviously have, have, have found the
0: formula yeah i mean he was making a killing i think it was something crazy like 400,000 uh, during the first year of business while in school so um right. he had good exactly. reasons to drop out so so i guess uh, in your case uh, after this um, this second company then you decide to join digital equipment but why did you go and work for someone else when you already had experience what it looked like being an entrepreneur?
1: Well, I, you know, one thing that I've learned from larger organization is to see what a successful, uh, established company looked like from the inside. And, you know, in my mind, uh, one always needs that perspective. Uh, you know, if you don't have a personally, you probably need a team with others who have that experience because as company grow at different stages is like a totally different job and what the CEO need to focus on is totally different. So that was a very great experience. They also told me that I don't want to work in a large company forever too.
0: So then, so then after this, uh, the idea of your first big, big success uh, came along, Unica. So how did the idea of Unica come, you know, first and foremost in front of you and how did you decide to bring that to life?
1: Well first, uh, when, when I was working on digital equipment, uh, I did my graduate work in the area of data mining so so me and uh, other uh, friends of mine uh, joined the group. Uh, data mining, by the way, is you know what we learn is really machine learning and all the statistical approaches around that and so we apply that in digital as a service. When we started unica along with with uh, two other co-founders we Basically, apply our knowledge in machine learning and created a tool to help organizations to process their data without having to be an expert. So it's a, it's a very early t- tool set for people to build statistical models, neural networks, and so it's it's along the line of study that, that I've been working on, frankly, uh, for a while.
0: So then, so then, once you took the um, the leap of faith. And you started to, to really go at it full time. You know, what, what were some of the initial steps? I mean, did you put together the team or, or, or how did you execute on this?
1: Yeah, so we, we, we started the business in 1992 in a recession. So uh, we started out with a model of finding a few customers and that just, you know, experiment with the types of product that would sell. We basically bootstrapped the business uh, through 1992 all the way to 1998. Uh, so it was a pretty you know, long haul of seven years. We got to profitability finally in ni- 1997. And we started to hit a particular growth area, specifically in the area of marketing automation. And that, that was the business that was able to propel Unica to grow by leaps and bound. At one point, we were one of the fastest growing companies in, in America. Uh, and then we ended up bringing it to public in 2005.
0: So up until 98, you guys were like basically grabbing whatever money you would generate and just putting it back into the business, no financing whatsoever? Correct, correct. Got it. Uh,
1: And basically uh, build a product as you sell uh, solutions, as you sell parts of the product. And then over time, we start to focus in on industry areas and, and that accelerated our growth.
0: Got it. So the IPO was in 2005. So did you guys take any financing? I believe you guys got some financing, right?
1: Yeah, so interestingly enough, we, we, we got some money before the dot-com crash uh, about, uh, to the tune of about $11 million. And uh, the interesting thing is, we, by the time we went public in 2005, we have close to $70 million cash on our balance sheet. And our banker told us, you can't go public with this much cash. Uh, so basically, we didn't really touch the money that we raised. Um, so we ended up dividending that out and, and went public.
0: Got it. So then what were the, um, because typically when you're bootstrapping a business, it's very complicated because if you take the wrong step, it could mean the, um, it could be catastrophic. So how were the, um, how were those years, you know, where you were building up the business and growing up the revenues, getting the team together, walk us through it. Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Most people think that by taking venture
1: money, you can grow rapidly. And if you don't, that means, uh, uh, the converse is true, it means if you don't take money, that you can't grow rapidly. But ironically, we were growing at over 100% for many years at, at Unica without using venture money. And part of that has to do with the fact that we built the company from the ground up uh, with high level of customer centricity, focusing on the customer's problem, uh, spending money in a very disciplined way, never let uh, the lack of money be an obstacle to growth, but at the same time, making sure that the culture the business and uh, the type of decision we made are well thought through. Um, I've seen too many entrepreneurs blow, blow through their money because they don't have that discipline. And so, so, so I'm a huge believer. That's why even today at OLEGO, we were bootstrapped all the way through without using external fund. Uh, and that's something I'm very proud
0: of. Got it. And so what ended up being the um, in, in UNICA, the business model, so that the listeners understand?
1: Yeah. So we, we help, uh, chief marketing officers in companies to, uh, run their, their operations basically end to end to help a, a CMO. Uh, most of our customers were, uh, large business to consumer, uh, companies such as, you know, financials, those in financial services, retail, hospitality and so forth. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a growing business. uh, And we basically created the, uh, the market for, for marketing automation at the time.
0: Got it. And was there like, for example, you know, during these years, especially between 92 and 98, where you thought, my God, eh, we're not going to make it?
1: There are several times like that, uh, although
0: every time I remember coming back
1: up and saying, you know what, even if this kills me, I'm going to make it work. And uh, pretty soon I often joke with my colleague that pretty soon i have exhausted sometimes all the wrong answer
0: before I find the right answer. And we able to persevere after that. So, what was, for example, the darkest moment for you guys?
1: Well, there are times where uh, uh, you have to pay the rent, right? And and we, I even contract myself out to do programming in the daytime. You know, so there are times where you just you just have to do whatever it takes. I I took on uh, almost two hundred thousand on my credit card uh, wow. as, as, as credit card debt. So those are pretty tough times. Luckily, I was single. Luckily, I was able to uh, to work as hard as I I could without much uh,
0: constraints. Got it. So, uh, wow. I mean, that's uh, talking about uncertainty. um, Yuchun, so so let me ask you this then. So you guys actually with Unica went through several recessions. So what what did you learn as a result from that? Like if you had to, let's say, uh, for the people that are listening, prepare for a recession, what would that preparation look like?
1: Yeah, so we went through three recessions at Unica, two wars, one global currency crisis. Um, And through the ups and downs, we're able to grow the business. I think of all 18 years of history, we had one down quarter in the entire history of the business. And I think part of this, again, has to do with the core discipline of, you know, are you building a business that can scale? Are you are you not just buying business? Are you spending money prudently? Is that the the, the right culture? Uh, Do we have the right culture for the whole organization? So that everybody knows that they spend money like it's their own money, and on the one hand, on the other hand, a maniacal focus on customers. I mean customers are the lifeblood of, of any business. I know a lot of companies say that, a lot of you know executives say that, but very few businesses I think truly are customer centric, and I believe that by staying close to your best customers and build a culture of, of prudence, uh, you know that's what it takes to weather through the ups and downs. I'm very confident. For example, a Lego is very well built today that we can weather through uh, the next recession, which is sure to come. I mean, it's a matter of time.
0: So then what, what, what does it look like when a company is customer centric?
1: When it's customer centric, you uh, gravitate and service your customers and you try to solve and anticipate the problem that they have. You, you uh, The organization has to be a great listening organization. At the same time, you don't want to be a pushover. right? You want to make sure that there's a balance that if you add value to your customer, you can pay for it. Um, in a downturn, you have to shift your strategy from uh, revenue generating value proposition to cost cutting value proposition. Uh, you want to make sure that uh, you have enough uh, imagination or flexibility or talent in your organization to uh, to to weather the 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 the, um, uh, the changes in buying behavior, the changes in in, uh hiring markets and how the organization grow I mean those are things that uh there are many many lessons I've learned too bad that's really that way
0: so let's talk about the Ipo process how was that for you guys it was a great process I I
1: I, uh, I think it elevated unica's uh, visibility in the market and we were able to attract even greater uh, number of customers uh, but after a few years the the tax if you will that would put on the business, Kind of, you know, that's one part of me feel like I, I love the experience on the one hand. The other experience is just, you know, there's quite a bit of tax on the executive side on my time. I spent probably about 15 percent of my time dealing with Wall Street's investors. Um, but uh, overall, if you're a business that need uh, a high level profile, that need financing, that need uh, any liquidity for, for any shareholders, that that is obviously still a viable path.
0: And what was the most uh, nerve wracking moment of uh, either going IPO or or being the um, you know uh, uh, the CEO of a publicly publicly traded company?
1: Well, there are times where uh, the Wall Street expectation run well ahead of your company's guidance. I mean, the, the the pattern is once you start to hit your number, you start to raise your targets. Over time, Wall Street react to it and say, "Yeah, these guy's going to beat it." So they end up taking moving their own target up beyond what the management recommendation is. When that happens, you're now stretching. And sooner or later, you're going to miss a quarter. And uh, probably the darkest time I ever went through as a public company when I first missed a quarter. And that, that was just very hard. I mean, you you feel like you let people down. But it it's also one of those things that I believe every company will miss their quarter because it's, it's a game theory uh, outcome where the expectation will eventually outpace uh, the actual uh, through this closed-loop process that we have here.
0: So how was that night when, when you, after the earnings call, you went back home and, and you were falling asleep and looking at the ceiling? What was going through your head?
1: <laughs> I actually uh, walked on, on the street of Nantucket and a bought a sculpture called Entrepreneur to remind me of that night. I still have the sculpture.
0: Wow. And, and what would you say was the breakthrough for you? Because obviously that's a breakdown and and then, you know, what what would you say that moment opened up for you and 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 how did you really tackle, you know, that as a as a leader to really turn things around?
1: You know, we 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 I, I'm a firm believer that 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 one should love your own mistakes and learn from every single setback. And so for me, you know, it's it's one of those things that I've I've been preparing for. I prepared the company for actually. I've even before it went public, I would show these graphs that, that goes up and down to the whole organization to say, hey, we, we, when we go public, you, you are going to have a downturn. So part of this is, is preparation. But, but at the end of the day, it's, it's still an emotional journey. And, and I, think, uh, I do think individuals grow and thrive if they're able to overcome uh, adversity. And that's what I, I tell my kids uh, uh, all the time, to, to, to be able to bounce back from it.
0: And that's very interesting, you know, when you're talking about emotions, because I think that it's definitely a roller coaster of emotions as an entrepreneur, and it's very tough to be a, a proactive and less reactive to whatever is in front of you. So how how did you deal with that?
1: Yeah, it's uh, I I've learned that that it's much easier to to run a business when you admit you're not perfect, and uh, when you are receptive to feedback. And and uh, embrace mistakes. Those are actually some of the core value we have at at a Lego here, and so so I try to share that with as many professionals as I, as I can. And I, I'm a huge believer that if one learns to embrace your own mistake, if one learns to be true listener to feedback, uh, you will be able to overcome a lot of adversity because you treat every one of them as an opportunity opportunity to grow. And again, there's an the emotional component. You got to build that fortitude. Uh, but that's that's what it takes, you know. You gotta you gotta keep yourself in check as well as uh, making sure that you can you can continue to thrive and and rebound from from adversity.
0: Got it. And IBM became a customer of uh, Unica, which uh, led to uh, a positive outcome. So so can you walk us through how you know a customer all of a sudden ends up being a four hundred and eighty million acquisition?
1: Yeah. So IBM uh, is a Organization that's great at selling to IT companies, IT organizations, and companies, and and I think they, over time they begin to realize that chief marketing officers spend a lot of money on technology as well. When they start, when when the whole world of customer communication and marketing shifted to digital communication, so and then they began to realize that they don't have a strong enough offering for marketers. So. They bought Unica and I actually helped IBM bought additional organization to assemble a set of technologies and solutions for CMOs. Um, they actually spent, uh, I mean, the, we, we artificially lowered the number, but it's actually over half a billion dollars that they spent on acquiring us. And uh, we're able to help anchor their solution to the market uh, uh, for the CMOs, basically. So then at what point did the conversation turn into an acquisition? It's. It's when a convergence of our success as a solution for IBM's usage in their marketing, specifically digital and web marketing, and a uh, uh, general manager there realize that hey, we got to be in the market for these kind of solutions. So it's both a familiarity of our solution and a strategic need in IBM. So c- I believe that companies are never companies shouldn't be sold; they should be bought, and in that case. IBM is the one that realized the need, and they approach us uh, to further that conversation. You know, it's not like us proactively go after IBM for
0: to be acquired. And was it like, um, like an unexpected email or a phone call that you got from the corporate development team, or or the team that you were working with on the product side? They all of a sudden, you know, send you a note saying, "Hey, I'd like to introduce you to these guys that want to talk." Yeah,
1: to-. It's, it's the intro. It's initial conversation is always the introduction from the people you know in the organization. And then you gradually move towards uh, all the decision makers that, that, that do acquisitions. Um, and then we have advisors that obviously are familiar with the process. And at some point you realize, hey, this is, this is not just talk. This is real.
0: So how long did it take from, from introduction to, to completion of the deal? Um, let me see. It, it took about six months. Really cool. So how was that day when you signed <laughs> uh I was in
1: Singapore and I signed it through a fax and i sh- I shot it back it, it was i mean it was fine it was, it was the right decision and uh and i was I was actually really excited because IBM had had a lot of resources uh that they can help uh help grow the business
0: faster got it I mean I mean this is a company that you were from ninety two all the way you know to um to the day that, that you actually completed the deal, which was which, which year did you complete the deal in? Uh, 2005. Oh, sorry. I mean,
1: uh, two, uh, uh, 2005 went public, 2010. 2010 it.
0: we completed. I mean, it's had a long time, you know, with, with your baby. So uh, did, did you feel like some sense of loss or, or, or something like that once you knew that, you know, now it was under a different umbrella?
1: Well, I didn't because I stayed with the business for uh, almost three more years in IBM. And in fact, I helped IBM craft a, a larger strategy, accelerate the, 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 the growth of the entire group, not just Unica, but also other businesses that we have acquired. So I feel yeah. like I'm just executing on the same path, except with you know more uh, assets, more resources, and, and a large distribution network across 190 plus countries. So it was interesting. It was a great experience,
0: and also what an outcome! Not a great experience, but also an amazing outcome because half a billion, uh, you know, deal. So, uh, any indulgence, Uchon here that that you did, any anything that you bought?
1: Uh we bought a house a bit closer to town. That was probably the biggest indulgence. But beyond that, um, you know, we, uh, uh, I thought I, I thought I was going to retire, but retirement is way overrated after two weeks on the beach i I feel like i got to get back to work so
0: so what did you learn then because going back to work meant working with general catalyst what what was that experience like for you
1: yeah so uh, i didn't know whether i want to be an investor or start out a company or what uh, 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 while at the same time i've started incubating uh, a lego of my current company and i think through general catalyst i've learned that uh you know, you can do multiple things. There are a lot of talented people in General Catalyst that, show, that have shown me that you can do multiple things and you can multitask, uh, where, whereas at Unica, I was very single-threaded. So I, after General Catalyst, I realized that I actually enjoy running company. I want to get involved with businesses. I, I enjoy the prospect of grooming professionals and help them grow as, as professionals. So uh, that's how I got back on the saddle, if you will, and started running businesses again.
0: And I want to talk about just really quickly your experience, with, your experience with General Catalyst, and and especially being on the other side of the table. I mean, any any takeaways or or any anything that you saw more from the investor side, you know, when you were overlooking and seeing, you know, the operator side, you know, from from a thirty thousand foot view. Any any key takeaways that that you took, you know, with you from that.
1: Well, you know, the biggest surprise I had was uh, I thought venture investors and Investors in general are, uh, lack of a better word, system thinkers. They are, they are thinking about economics. They're thinking of you know market trends and whatnot. When in reality, especially in the early uh, ventures, meaning venture firms that deal with startups or Series A and B companies, most of the professionals there, I would say, are actually not system thinking economists or anything. But they actually are people, people, people. They are. They are professionals that are very talented at, at, at sizing up individuals, understand what makes them tick, and bet on teams of people. So they're they almost like HR professionals, if you will. That was very surprising to me.
0: That's very cool. HR professionals. I mean it I mean if you think about it, it's kinda of like recruiting too, no? Like when you're an yeah. investor, you're trying to, to, to get the right people. You try to spot talents and
1: understand. This group, even if their business idea sucks, they'll figure it out.
0: So what were the traits of these guys that you were the most impressed by?
1: Uh, People who are
0: huge extroverts, who are big connectors.
1: They are very fun to be with. And uh, I think they make things happen by connecting the dots between people. And by connecting the dots between people, ideas get, get generated and things happen. That's the biggest lesson I've learned. And I also learned that I'm not one of those. So uh, that 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 my skill sets is in actually building company versus uh, you know connecting, socializing people.
0: So what does what does connecting the dots between people look like?
1: Um, Well, you know, sometimes it takes one or two key board members to be added to a business, or connecting one entrepreneur with another entrepreneur, or you know, at the critical moment introduce a business to. uh, somebody that that from a, a company that may be a suitable acquirer of that business uh, and just you know starting to make intro and, and make connections I, I think that's really the, the critical value i think a board adds and a venture firm add to any business
0: very cool so then let's talk about alego because you incubated alego during your stint with the general catalyst so so how did you you know, come across the problem and how did you start to see the solution that eventually became illegal?
1: Yeah. So, uh, at, at Unica and uh, IBM, I ran a pretty large sales organization, uh, as part of my, my business. And I've always felt that, that sales reps, uh, are not very well trained. The way reps are trained is that you, you typically, uh, have some sort of boot camp or kickoff meeting, uh, you bring them to these places and, 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 and you, uh, you know you you make sure you 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 throw a party so everybody feels good about the team and then you lock them in a room and you put a pipe down their throat and you pump like a thousand powerpoint and somehow magically assume they're going to remember all this it, and 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 it never happens right they they forget what they've learned from those meetings and so i believe that even back then that there's got to be a better way so at lego we help businesses onboard their reps faster and help them Uh, be better at launching new products and help them be to be more efficient in selling every day by turning the whole learning process, the training process upside down. You know, most of us learn, most, most of us love to learn when we need the information, not when we want to learn it just in case I need information. So, so we uh, pioneered this concept called just in time learning. Uh, We help companies basically set up an end to end system to, uh, uh, make sure the rep learn all the all they need to learn, not just formally, but informally. Where ninety percent of the learning happens, so that's that's the business of Lego. How do you make money? We help organizations do that, and they pay us on a per seat basis, per rep basis. And I know many of your listeners are are in the financial services industry, so you think of companies like John Hancock or Nuveen or uh, TIAA or. Uh, you know, TD Ameritrade and, and even BlackRock who won an award uh, from our customer conference last year. You know, these are companies with, with a huge customer facing, facing organization and having a Lego help them get the latest, greatest intel from the market, make sure all, all the people are trained and make sure that they are consistent in their messaging. That's what we do.
0: And you were talking before about how you lever- leveraged your network that you created at MIT to really surround yourself with talent at Alego. So, so can you walk us through that?
1: Yeah, you know, even today at Alejo, a lot of our hires are from referrals. You know, as a company grow and you build a reputation to be a great place to work, uh, employees automatically would submit more and more referral. And as the circle gets bigger, you can grow organically. Uh, that's not the one thing. The other thing is, uh, you know, I still I still am an XIR, uh, basically an executive uh, connected to General Catalyst, and uh, through that network, and also recently, uh, I also connected with 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 Summit Partners, who put some money into a Lego. Um, you know, both both of these firms help a Lego gain more connectivity exposure in the market, uh, as well as as you know, just in general, give give us. Uh, valuable feedback that w- we wouldn't otherwise. So so it's all about building these networks of employees, network of customers through introduction. By the way, our customers also refer us to other customers. When our customer uh, individuals move job from one company to another, they bring us over. So to some extent, I believe that successful business today sits on top of these network of people. And at Lego, we're really, really good at making sure that customers are satisfied and that they're able to bring us to their new, new job and new business.
0: So then let's talk about the, the money side, because I know that you guys have uh, you know, you were pointing to it with Summit. So how much money have you guys raised for the business? Uh,
1: a little under uh, a little under 16 million uh, altogether. Um, but again, we most of the money we raise is sitting on the on the balance sheet. And uh, our job here, we're, we're actually doing better than, than Unica in the sense that we're, we're also growing organically. We try to grow uh, cash flow neutral, basically organically and uh, as a as a business we are probably growing at twice the rate that we were at unica Uh, since inception our compounded annual growth rate is over 140 percent we were number
0: we were number five in 500 last year and that's very interesting that you say that because in many instances when you go to investors and you say oh you know like uh, we need this amount of money for marketing and we're going to spend it on, on marketing Anyone can 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 raise money to spend it on marketing, but the toughest part is to really identify unique um, uh, channels that can help you to grow the to grow the business organically. So you were alluding to that. So so what what, what have you learned about you know building organically uh, a business? Yeah. So I, I I believe that by
1: having too much money, people become lazy in their decision-making process, you know, and the converse is very true, which is when you are under constraint, every decision is made properly. So when, when a company is bootstrapped from the beginning, they grew up with the, with the mentality that these are critical decisions and we don't make them lightly. And by, by having that kind of discipline, when you do have money, when you do grow, you're able to just make better decisions over time. You know that's that's the first thing we know. The second thing we we do is we correct course very quickly. If we made a, we we do make mistakes in our execution, but when we do, we correct our course very quickly. We have a very intellectually honest, open culture at Lego, and uh, you know very very high retention as a business.
0: And what does an open culture look like?
1: We are very collaborative. You know, in our sales force, for example. Uh, anybody can ask any questions and people would jump in. We obviously a Lego use our own tool to to help train salespeople. In fact, many of our customers are using a Lego, not just for Salesforce, but for, for the rest of the organization as well, to help people collaborate, to help them access critical content in the organization, as well as help them, you know, do onboarding and ongoing training and learning. So the system part helps, the culture part is open, collaborative. And very intellectually honest, and, and and one of our operating principles that I talk to every single one of the employees is that is that you know try to learn to love your mistakes and not don't be too defensive about it if somebody pointed out to you.
0: Got it, got it. Very, very cool. And and you guys are based in Boston, is that right? Correct, a, a town about twenty minutes west of Boston called Needham. So how 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 is now the um, the area of Boston for for building and and scaling up companies?
1: Yeah, so downtown Boston is, is a very hot m- market. And what we've, we're seeing is that, is that the rent in that area has gone just skyrocketed through the roof, you know, approaching $100 per square feet there. And I, I believe that, that uh, the millennials that are working in downtown within five years will start to realize, gee, once we have family, have kids, it's not clear whether the Boston nightlife is the way to go once you marry and have kids. So we are actually the counter downtown culture here out in Needham, where there's tons of parking space. There's, you know, I, my commute to, to the work is six minutes in the morning. I just see the lines and lines of people going to downtown. And, and I was joking with my management team, we should put a, put a billboard up there to say, hey, are you tired of this commute? If so, come to Olego.
0: Wow. Very, very interesting. Very interesting stuff, Yuchun. So, so one, one of the questions that I typically ask the... Um, the guests that I have on the show, is that if you had the opportunity to go back in time and and have a conversation with your younger self, let's say, you know, with that younger self that was, uh, let's say, starting, you know, the first business, you know, it could be Unica or, or maybe the other projects that you were doing while at the grad school or, or high school. If you had the chance to give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? I
1: would probably, it wouldn't be one advice, it would be a lot of advice, I could tell you. I've learned so much since my younger self. And, uh, you know, it, it's basically lots of elements that I sh- I'm sharing here with you. You know, elements around uh, be comfortable with yourself, be uh, open to feedback, negative feedback, you know, be open to to uh, feedback on mistakes, learn from your mistakes, having that emotional fortitude. All that took me thirty plus years to learn. Um, if I had known that in my early self, I think I would have do a lot better than I am today.
0: That's really interesting. So, so talking about learning from your mistakes, and you know, I'm sure that you've you've been able to do that a lot, even though you've been incredibly successful. When when you really get to learn and and get the most out of the mistakes is when you really embrace reflection. So, how do you really? Uh, execute on that reflection to get the most out of, you know, that failure and, and really learn and bounce back?
1: Yeah, it, it takes practice. And I will say that uh, I, I openly tell my team that, hey, I'm going to make 10 to 15 percent wrong decisions, but you got to help me figure out which one are wrong so we don't all make the wrong decision. Right. And, and when you have that open uh, attitude towards your team, they become more open. And then you have a, a now an environment where you can help each other, support each other to go through that. And to some extent, I view that as a safety net, right? You know, I'm, I'm a I'm human as much as I want to do uh, the right thing. I will make mistakes continuously, but having an open, supportive culture, uh, basically head you and, and help you through those tougher time or when you make mistake, my, my team will call out on it. If I make a mistake or if they feel like my decision is wrong, right? And to me, that 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 is the best way to work because then I have I don't have to pretend like I'm somebody I'm not, and I don't have to pretend like I'm perfect. So uh, that that's my formula, really.
0: And I think that that's very powerful because in many instances I see, you know, what I'm what people are starting to call the CEO bubble, right? Where you live in in this bubble and you're in this bubble, and and in you're completely detached from from. From what's going on in the organization and you know people are not able to have an open communication with you and then when you realize it's too late that's right
1: that's right knowing that truth knowing the truth is and as the company grows the harder it is to to get the information around that's why uh, lego you know some of the capability we have is to help company uh uh a, a sort of excel the critical information in the, in the organization throughout the enterprise not just within the sales team but throughout the enterprise
0: very cool uh,
1: i think that's a critical part of uh, understanding what truth is, what the world is. You could be the smartest team, but if you got the wrong idea of what the world is, uh, you could still make a lot of mistakes.
0: Of course. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh,
1: I'm, I have an open door policy to, to, to everybody. Uh, my email is ylee at allego.com. So feel free to reach out to me.
0: Wonderful. And are you on any uh, social media, uh, Twitter or, or LinkedIn? Or... Uh, I'm on
1: LinkedIn. I I, uh, I try to be more subdued on the rest of the social media out of privacy reason. Uh, but yeah, LinkedIn is, is probably the best channel.
0: Wonderful. Well, Jushin, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. Thank you. That was fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value